everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Terror Table, a horror movie podcast that is presented by the Saskatchewan Podcast Network. I am your host, Mitch Oliver, and on this week's episode, I am joined once again by a great friend of the table, Scott Hamilton, who is the film programmer at the Broadway Theatre in Saskatoon here. Scott was on the recent episode in which we talked about every film that was shown at this year's Saskatoon Fantastic Film Festival, and if you tuned into that episode, you may remember that Scott and I both named the new horror film, My Heart Can't Beat Unless You Tell It To, as one of our absolute favorite films of the year. So we are thrilled to be welcoming the film's writer and director, Jonathan Cuertes, as well as the, the film cinematographer, Michael Cuertes, to the show to discuss their first feature and their very interesting filmmaking journey thus far. My Heart Can't Beat Unless You Tell It To hasn't been released yet, but this episode doesn't contain any spoilers. We highly encourage you all to keep an eye out for the film's release because, as mentioned before, these guys truly made one of the best horror movies of the year, and we all can't wait for you guys to see it. You can follow Jonathan Cuertes on Twitter and Instagram at John Cuertes, as well as the film's Instagram page and Twitter account at Heart Can't Beat for any updates on the film. But without further ado, enjoy this week's episode of The Terror Table. What's up, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Terror Table, a horror movie podcast that is presented by the Saskatchewan Podcast Network. I'm your host that you hear every single week, and my name is Mitch, and today I have Scott Hamilton, of the, the film programmer of the Broadway Theatre, filling in for Kyle and Boozy, and uh, we are very, very excited to be welcoming Jonathan Cuertas and Michael Cuertas, the brothers behind My Heart Can't Beat Unless You Tell It To. So Jonathan is the writer and director and Michael is the cinematographer. And uh, yeah, we're just we're crazy happy to have you guys on the show. How are you guys both doing? Pretty well. We're excited to be on the podcast as well. This is for me my my second just the second podcast for the film. Crazy, crazy. How about you, Michael? Have you done a podcast before? I have, but not for this film. So I'm excited. Thanks for having us. Right off the get-go here, I just want to say, like, you guys just, uh, I, I think, Johnny, I'm not sure if Michael has heard it yet, but uh, Scott and I recorded an episode a couple weeks ago about all of the films that we saw at the Saskatoon Fantastic Film Festival, <clears throat> and one of those films was your guys' film, and uh, it ended up in both of our top threes of the entire festival. We, I lo we love your movie, and we're so happy to have you here. You guys truly made a powerful piece of horror cinema and i have no doubts that this thing is gonna be beloved by a lot of people and on behalf of our city and our festival like the saskatoon fantastic film festival thank you for sharing your story with us and you know it, it's it's a miracle that we were able to have a festival at all uh let alone one in person but we we're now officially in the clear that i don't i don't believe we've had any cases come out of the festival which is very nice but like most people who are listening to this show, you know, people like us, we use films to escape. We use films like uh, throughout the year. It's been a crazy year. Uh, it, we've just been trying to keep our mind off of everything. And your guys' film did a great job of, you know, captivating our audience. And thank you so much for it. And thank you for being here. And congratulations. Thanks so much. That that means a lot. I mean, we've, we've been happy to have the film play in many different countries. This is uh, the second time in, in Canada. The other time was in Calgary. But it's been fun reception, even though we haven't attended any festivals. Haven't actually seen the completed film in a theater. So I envy all of you. But I'm happy that you all enjoyed it and that it was captivating enough that 
you were able to forget about everything for an hour and a half. You know, it's that's that's the power of the movies. Are are you guys getting any of that? Uh, I, I guess that festival feedback at this point in terms of what the the crowd reaction has been. Because I I was saying earlier off, Mike, that I really wish you could have been there to see. It, it was a it was a it was a palpable reaction from the audience. It it, it was a collective lump in the audience's throat. Uh, have you been hearing anything else of that like magnitude? I mean, just hearing that, it just it, I feel butterflies in my stomach just because of the excitement of mm-hmm. of a real reaction. Because I feel like you know we we scour at least I do. I'll I'll be on my iPhone looking on Twitter looking on on Google, just finding anything that I can read about over the film or about the film. That's how I found the podcast as well. Just find like looking for the tag of the movie, but to hear a person say that with their voice is just something that's so rare and it hasn't happened for this film. So it really does mean a lot. Well, also like this is your first feature. That's And Michael, is this your first feature as well? Yeah, it is actually. That's insane. Like we're we're okay. So I want people to know that we're not going to be spoiling the film for anyone because uh, it's not available yet. But um, hopefully, we're going to be able. People will be able to see it soon. Uh, but we're more so just going to talk to you guys about you guys as filmmakers and you as um, genre fans. And mm-hmm. hopefully, it'll generate some excitement for when you know the eventual release date is dropped and people are all able to see this because. I think you guys have a very, very bright future of hearing if you if hearing Scott and myself say nice things about it. You guys have so much in store. Like the you guys the the film is phenomenal, and uh, yeah, our 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 theater loved it. So it's be be proud, be proud. Thank you, thank you, <laughs> but thank you. Speaking of which, though, um, we are a horror podcast, so I want to get catch our audience up on you guys a little bit. And uh, we haven't even gotten to talk that much yet. So we I guess what we want to know is, are you guys horror fans in general? Because clearly my heart can't beat unless you tell it to isn't a run of the mill genre movie. It's definitely has some leanings in other places like art house and uh, drama. Like it's very heavy on the drama, but at its core, it is a terrifying story. And that's got to come from somewhere. Are you, have you guys been horror fans for? What's your experience with horror movies? Let's start with Jonathan. I I'm definitely a horror fan. I love Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I love The Exorcist. When I was a kid, I was terrified of these movies. I would never watch them. I was so scared. Even just hearing the audio of the movie in another room, I would run out of the house. And I think it's cool that now. I'm kind of absorbed. I mean, I was absorbed by this script for many years because we made a short version before. And so I think I would write at night a lot and I would still feel like someone was watching me. And I would, But it's that excitement that I like from horror movies. So even though it is uh, a slower burn kind of art house aesthetic, I do appreciate fun horror too. I love all kinds of horror movies. Off the top of my head, have you, have you seen Dead Alive? No, I haven't. Okay, that's because that's just like a yeah. completely nothing like your film. But uh, I I highly suggest yeah. you check that but one I, out as well. <laughs> I love Evil Dead. You know, there you all go. those. Yeah, 
Yeah, I, I'm I'm very on record on this podcast about my feelings about Evil Dead. We don't we yep. almost, almost shouldn't bring that up again. <laughs> the first time we had Scott on the show was uh, was just an all out love fest for the Evil Dead. He was on for our Evil Dead episode, and he's uh, basically an encyclopedia of that film. So I, I, I was I was brought on because that that is if I if I have a life changing movie, that's the one. So yeah, yeah awesome. that's great. So what about you, Michael? Are you are you a genre fan as well? I am, actually. I, I think it's funny because when we were kids, uh, I remember watching, I think it was Halloween 4. For some reason, that's the one that we watched over and over, maybe just because it was always on TV for some reason. But um, yeah, we were, as kids, we were both always drawn to that. And then that kind of, you know, the first Saw movie, I remember that being something that, that really stood out to me and we, we were into like the grudge and the ring when, when I was in middle school. Um, and then as of late, that's kind of expanded into, you know, hour of the wolf by Bergman. And there's another film called eyes without a face, which is really powerful. And, and I think lately we've been more into the European kind of genre films, but um, yeah, I do appreciate all of it. That makes a lot of sense to me. I actually cited Bergman when we were reviewing the film originally last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot to do, I think, maybe... Uh, that I found, felt that the visual sensibility of the movie, in terms of like a lot of the composition and everything, did mirror that style a lot more than what I guess would be seen as, as horror. It reminded me more of that kind of emotional existential horror of, of right. some of that early Bergman stuff. Right. Awesome. I mean, that's cool that it reminds you of that because he's, I mean, there's there's something about his compositions and, and his films in general that just like really hold up till till today, you know. Um, but yeah, there's there. I think horror is an interesting thing because there's like, you know, the fun horror. And then there's also like, to me, Foxcatcher, I don't know if you guys have seen that movie, but even that feels like a horror film to me. So my, I think my definition of it has kind of like expanded. But mm-hmm. I, I do appreciate, you know, the fun stuff, the the very serious stuff, the sad stuff. It's it's all I think it's all kind of funneled into into this into this film in some way. Yeah, I love that and like you you mentioning Foxcatcher as a horror story, even like it, it totally is. And I, I love that you are not putting a boundary on the right. word horror and what it yeah. is and what it can be. Um, cause this is, you know, I'm not going to be one of those douchebags who calls your movie an elevated horror movie. Uh, cause that's just like a stupid saying that people need to stop saying cause horror has always been elevated. Um, but you guys are just like your story. It's so, it's so interesting to hear all of your influences and see how they seamlessly all kind of flow together. So mm-hmm. I always awesome. told, I always told my friend that Texas Chainsaw is the most elevated horror movie. <laughs> it really it's is the most terrifying, and that's the point. Well, it, that it, and there's no blood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's crazy. That's I not mean, like a, a, a lot of the high points of the original Texas Chainsaw almost have more in common with like Breckridge or something like that. Like they, it does feel like some of that proper visceral. Yeah. experimental film stuff it does it, it when it's at its heights and it's really getting you know like dizzyingly oppressive which is i think uh like yeah that's uh, i i would agree with that entirely 
Yeah, totally. <laughs> so where where did you guys are a, are you would you guys consider yourself a filmmaking duo? I know this is only the first time, um, but I guess have you guys worked on short films together as well? Yeah, we've done. I've done like four shorts aside from this one, and my brother has shot all of them except one. But even on that one, he was like a script uh, consultant, key grip. So he's been a part of the career. Just like he, he's pretty much like another director, I would say. Yeah. But we all, we're, we're always together, always talking. So that's why it's fun. I thought it was funny thinking back, like you asked me about my experience with horror, but my answer was we, we, we. It's just because we're always like together, you know, like I see it as we're both one. But of course I do work with, other directors but um i think when we make films together it's it feels a bit different yeah i have a lot of questions about that actually just as working as as a duo uh both in in general but also in relation to this film because i think there's a really interesting conversation to be had since the film is kind of based on a lot of familial dynamic stuff but Mm -hmm. Is, uh, I, the, the, so the two samples that I have are this, and I also was able to, to catch the horse and the stag before we recorded. Um, so uh, I, I don't want to blanket the work as being exclusively intense, but the stuff I've seen has been very intense <laughs> thus far, to say the very least. Uh, is working so closely, like uh, in, in a lot of cases, you you know, that type of work is attributed to, you know, one creator and one mind and everything like that is having somebody who is a constant co-creator uh, to bounce that type of thing off of. Is that uh, it, does that create any challenges or does that create a, a sense of being able to instantly not have to, you know, justify your uh, your sensibility and all that kind of thing? Like, is it, does it make it harder or easier I mean, I think it, it's a way of uh, curating ideas, mm-hmm. if I could put it like that. I, I Sometimes I have ideas or premises and I pitch them to Mike and he maybe he won't like it as much or he'll say, oh, I don't know about that one. So then I know, okay, maybe I shouldn't uh, dedicate two years writing a whole feature script about this if he's not immediately passionate. And I think that maybe that can be a bad thing for me because I take it personal. But at the same time, our taste is so similar that in a way it's like my, me telling myself that it's not worth it, you know? Right. I guess I asked because uh, to me, both films came across and you can tell me I'm wrong. I'd be interested to know either way. They, they did come across as both uniquely quite personal uh, Scott, they, you're saying you're saying both films. Wh- which other one are you citing? Uh, there, it, it's a short film. Yeah, a short film called "The Horse and the Stag," which was oh, again right. sorry, I, I cut yeah. in, in a in a uh, in a word very intense. Um, and Scott, uh, I think you saw, I believe that's on Vimeo, right? That's where you saw it. Yes, yes, it okay. is. Okay, yeah, that's available online. Uh, it, uh, but, but uh, are the um, yeah, I, I, I guess I'm, I am, I am curious about the, I guess the, can't remember how I put this exactly just a moment ago. <laughs> personal. Yeah, yeah. In terms of them being personal works, like I, I they, they, it, uh, I, I am curious about where I guess, I guess origin for for these because they, uh, there is something very immediate about them and very tactile and very believable right out of the gate. Hmm. I think definitely telling personal stories is is a priority for me. 
And that's uh-huh. like number one for sure. And I, and I find myself doing that now for my new script is finding a tie to it personally, whether that's firsthand or secondhand experience um, about my family, because I think that's another theme that's strong is a familial theme um, and the importance or grief of, of family or taking care of family. But yeah, the horse and the stag was a little bit less personal as far as a straightforward connection to the premise, mm-hmm. but the feature definitely it's it's a straight i'm taking something out of my life a, a very straightforward experience and i'm using uh the vampire archetype to tell that story right well and i guess and 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 i will i'll i'll, I'll follow that strand with one more question that i was really curious about when i when i realized that there was a familial tie within the makings of the film there are a lot of uh, there's a big discussion going on about it, like a familial codependency kind of run amok. But you guys have a close working relationship as family, which I think is really interesting. Is that something that is, I mean, is there an, an awareness that you, you kind of even artistically need one another while you're working on this piece? I mean, I think it's just so much so that our sibling, our brotherhood is so strong that the, one of my biggest fears is just losing a sibling. You know, I have, it, it's three of us, actually. There's a younger brother, too, and that's why it's three siblings in the movie. But it, it's just the fear of having to lose someone. Or if you were to lose someone who's that close to you, at least for us personally, we grew up together. We've always been very, very close-knit as a family unit, even with our parents. And so... And and also our dad was a production designer on this film, so it's kind of a a trio of of uh, creative collaboration that ties in directly with the familial aspect. So I think it it does maybe work hand in hand subconsciously, but it's nice to tell stories about things that are personal with the people who actually experience those stories in real life, even if they're not. You know, they're obviously more extreme in the film, but there's a connection there. That's amazing that you guys were able to do this all together. And like, cause it is such a, it's such a intimate story. And, um, I guess like where, where did the, so you said your dad was the, was he a set production designer? Is that what you said? Yeah, he was. Uh, How, so like you guys are a film family. <laughs> where where did this where did it where did it all begin? Has it your your father is he uh has he been in the film business for a while? No, actually not at all. He's he he's always been into art, always been into architecture, painting. Um he he my parents are from Colombia. They came to this country in the eighties. My dad had to pursue a more practical career. And so he kind of put the art aside and now he wants to come back into it. And I thought that it was, or my brother and I thought it was a good way to bring him back into the fold in a different way where he can practice skills of architecture and art and set direction and well, set design, sorry. Um, but his first film was The Horse and the Stag, the, the short. And then this was his second film to ever be part of as a crew at all that's beautiful that's awesome um michael do you do you remember what the first film that you saw was that kind of made you want to be a filmmaker or specifically be the one holding the camera 
I mean, th- that's a good question. I, I don't know. I, I don't remember it in, in terms of that, but I do know that we used to be into skating a lot. Um, yes. And we would, we would all film each other skate. And I, and I know that that feeling of having a camera and like capturing what your friends are doing and then getting home and like editing it, putting the clips together, like that was something that really, it was really fun. And I, maybe it came from there and also from our parents taking us to the movies a lot as kids like that. That was like our family outing, you know, so it could have been a combination of that. That's awesome. You're speaking my language because I grew up uh, also being the the kid of uh, my, my dad owned an audio and video store. So I had a video camera and I would follow my friends around and film them skateboarding. And I feel like yeah, yeah. a lot of a lot of uh, filmmakers that I've spoken to have said that, like those early years of, you know, being able to know what kind of power you're catching with a with a camera like even if you're just a kid all eating two decks or something yeah. like that it's uh it's fun and like also like there was or i don't know i don't know your guys's age group but um my age group like there was a lot of these escape videos coming out where the cinematography was the star of the film like yeah. it's uh i'm thinking of girl yeah right uh, the girl video where they had they they took the skateboard they, they made a green screen skateboard and did an yeah. entire segment where there's so it looks like people are riding on air. Well, yeah, that's Spike Jones. That. Yeah, it's was, so good. Was that that's Spike all. Jones? That was. I think it was Spike Jones. Yeah, and then yeah, he went crazy. on to do fully flared. Yeah. Yeah, it's so awesome because we we would grow up watching those videos and then knowing that he's like such a strong filmmaker is just cool to see that people of his you know as 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 well known as he is like he started off in a similar way. So that's awesome. Yeah, Owen Wilson's in that video. Yeah, <laughs> Owen, Owen Wilson does a line in it. It's amazing. Cool. Well, so like you've already, you guys have briefly spoken about this already, but I guess I want to kind of fully get into it for people who haven't seen the film yet. Like, where did this story come to fruition? Because this isn't a standard vampire story, and obviously there's a lot of familial aspects to it. But um, was this kind of like? It also feels, sorry to kind of jump all over the place here, but um, in the age of COVID and coronavirus, this movie feels so isolating. And there's only, you know, th- generally three people on screen at most at the same time. Uh, did that have anything to do with this or has this always been just a project that you wanted to do? It has nothing to do with coronavirus, but That's now it's so relevant. Um, yeah. But yeah, we did it 2019, we shot. So we were... We were at the end of post-production this January, so it was right before everything went awry. But um, as far as the the impetus of the story, it was... So like I was saying, it's a very personal experience that I had. My dad has uh, five brothers and four sisters. And in 2016, my grandma was in hospice, and she was very sick. She wasn't going to get better. Um, it was very tense to be around the family, uh, all of us in this small house, a bunch of uncles, cousins, aunts, uh, trying to decipher what the best path was for her. And it really all leads to one place, right? It, re- it leads to the eventual letting go of, of a loved one and letting them pass away. Um, but obviously it's much harder and much more nuanced than that. And there's a lot of emotions. So it was just really an interest in exploring this dichotomy of tension with love 
because we were still all kind of bound together by the love that we have for each other as a family. And so it started from there. But I'm not only a genre fan as a movie watcher, but also as a movie maker. We, My brother and I, we've made all our shorts have been horror except one. We tried a crime thriller and it sucked. So we just went back to horror. That's where we feel most comfortable. Hey, we'll, gl- we'll gladly take you. <laughs> we will gladly take you. So we feel more comfortable in that area. And so it's fun to kind of uh, treat these very personal stories and, and kind of tie them up with these archetypes that we're so familiar with. And I feel like just by doing that, it's something unique because it's a very personal story that only myself and my family experienced in this specific way. And tying that into the narrative of a vampire, uh, you, you get those themes of codependency and you get those themes of taking care of someone and hospice and, and that, that's what was important. And then everything after that is just our love for genre and using the, the tropes of inviting someone in or the blood or the lack of sunshine. And, it, you know, I love all those archetypes, too. So it's always fun to embed that into the story. One of the things that impressed me the most about the I mean, the emotional thrust of the entire thing was where the line gets blurry between some the the people looking after the sick person and where you know the sickness starts to mutate and turn into a sickness for everyone else surrounding them and the they stop being able to really entirely appreciate the you know the, the every everyone winds when it especially when it gets into a really intense situation again like a hospice situation or anything like that it really does turn into everyone being sick in a way. It was a really, I mean, we've seen this in a lot of vampire films in terms of like me, people tackling different themes. This one was a really emotionally difficult thing to, to tackle again. Like the audience response to it was, I mean, it was a, an enormous gulp for people, I think. And discussing it afterwards, it, it resonated in an enormous way for a lot of folks. Do you think um, horror in general, I think, has had a tendency to be able to it's been fertile ground to have these types of discussions. And uh, but a lot of the time, I don't think are folks skip discussing elements that are that mature, I guess, emotionally. Do you do you think that that is a, a direction you want to keep on moving in and having like these, you know, really difficult discussions uh, w- within the framework of, you know, quote unquote genre? Yeah, I think this is definitely a, a, a sub genre that I want to be in. It's kind of this emotional violence, emotional horror. And um, I do like the collective uh, feeling in a room in a theater when the air is just sucked out and everyone's just sitting there and it feels so tense. Again, I Um, wish you guys could have been there for it. I really do. Oh my God. It was great. You know, it's something like Mike and I, we, we looked at painters too, like, uh, Edward Monk. And there's a painting that we were even thinking of calling the movie this at one point, it's called death in the sick room. And I think it's interesting because it's called a sick room. And it's almost like when you walk in there, everything becomes sick. It's like this contagious feeling. And I think that the energy is so strong that being able to channel that and 
kind of translated into a theater setting to explore something dark is uh, is is good. You know, it's it's heavy, but it's worth talking about. I think even if it's not a direct statement. You you briefly spoke on the title, and I'm sorry to be the person that needs to do this, but I think the first time I got in touch with you was I think you saw my Letterboxd uh, review yeah. where, where I said that it sounds like a Fall Out Boy song. <laughs> Yeah. And that is no disrespect. I'm personally a fan of early Fall Out Boy, but um, what, what, what was the? Obviously, I understand after seeing the film where the title came from. Um, but like, what's your opinion on titles in general? Because I can tell you that this one, as much as we showed 16 movies this year, and uh, a lot of them, you're in good company dealing with like familial problems, and there's some really incredible genre films coming out right now specifically to name off bleed with, have you seen bleed with me yet no you guys are gonna dig bleed with me it's uh amelia moses the director but it's kind of it would be a good double feature with your my heart can't beat but um my the debate that i always have been having with people since we've been talking about this this title is you know you can go on google and search up the top of my head the movie run came out recently good luck good luck finding that movie good luck finding it but my heart can't beat unless you tell it to is such a distinct title and uh what like was that always the idea behind the film that you wanted to call it that or how did you come to terms with this i think it's so hard for me to come up with the title of a movie this was the last thing that we did like this was it was me and mike i mean you could tell the story mike because you were there too. Yeah, it was. Uh, so we were. This was like pretty deep into prep, right? Or this was like the end of it. We were ready to shoot. You know. So it was. It was Kenny, who's our, our good friend and producer. Johnny and I were sitting down, um, just talking about what the title should be. Because that's one thing that he kept asking us. He's like, "Oh, so what's the title going to be?" Um, and I think he ended up showing us a song. And it's called I Am Controlled by Your Love. And he's like, oh, I've always wanted to use this in a movie. But then, is that how it goes, Johnny? And then we, we heard the lyrics. And then I was like, well, or one of us said, well, what about that lyric? What if that's the name of the movie? Yeah. And it felt, yeah. it felt them, thematically connected as well, I think. That's yeah. a brilliant, brilliant was, happenstance. So it, it was cool because the song is also, we're from Miami. And the song was recorded in Miami in the 60s. And in the script, I had something like 60s soul song, but we didn't have anything in mind. And Kenny always wanted to use this in one of his films that are kind of like a quirky drama comedy coming of age style. But he said, maybe it could work for this. And then we heard it. At first, we were thinking of calling it I Am Controlled by Your Love. But then the lyrics were just so, it connected so well that we just yeah. took that long lyric and that was the title of our movie. It's great. And it also, like, it makes for, honestly, I'm not just saying this because you guys are here, but my favorite scene of the year is uh, Patrick Fugit, like, reciting those words. <laughs> oh, wow. um, I think that that scene is so goddamn powerful. But also, sorry to derail this for a quick second, but uh, I'm on a horror podcast. I've hosted a horror podcast for four years now. I obviously like other types of cinema. Like that's where I've come from. Like I, I grew up just being a movie lover and the movie that truly changed my life before 
like you know i always i always talk about jaws because that's my favorite horror movie of all time but like almost famous is a massive film to me i have a signed i have a cameron crow signed one sheet that i spent a lot of money on um (laughs) that uh, that lived in my living room for a very long time uh the character of patrick fugit and will as like his character defined my life um it really it sent me on the path of being into getting into music and finding a sense of community there and then also cinema as a as a whole because the movie um, I know that it's like to a lot of people, it's a little like schmaltzy or whatever. I, I think it's a perfect film. And that is because of uh, Patrick Fugit and Billy Crudup's character. But doesn't, you, what's that? Sorry to cut you off, but doesn't that movie have like the best cast? Oh my God, it's so good. Like, and even I'm not a Kate Hudson fan, but she's so good in that movie. Like, she's perfect as that role. And the, yeah, the rest, like Jason Lee, yeah, Jay, Bur- so, Jay Bergman. Philip Seymour Hoffman's in it. And oh my so God, yeah. Francis McDormand. There's a yeah, bunch of Lester people. Bangs. Yeah. yeah, it's it's a perfect, It's I love that movie so much. So um, to have kind of a, you know, a little connection, like how what was Patrick always your choice for this? Or how did that come to be? Because for me, if I was, if I was making this movie, I'd be shit in my pants and I'd say, there's no way I can be in the same room as Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, to speak to that scene, I'm really happy that it's your favorite scene of the oh, film but it, of the year because that was a scene that came into the script very late. And I wanted something that was just a, a very uh, off-kilter reaction, or, or maybe it wasn't so far-fetched for him to react that way to a death, but I wanted it to be a very weird and out of character reaction to someone's death and to do that through music. Um, so I'm really glad that you enjoyed it because it was almost not in the movie at all. But oh, I think man. that, that, that kind of becomes like a, a very uh, iconic part just because it's Patrick and it's this soul song that sounds very timeless, but and his hands are covered in blood. <laughs> <laughs> I love it so much. I love it. It'd be great to to be at Physical Fest because all the parties would be just karaoke, just yeah. karaoke <laughs> parties. Um, but uh, to answer your other question, um, Kenny, who is a producer on this film, um, he's actually childhood friends with Patrick, and that's where the connection lies. They're both from Salt Lake City, which is where we also shot the movie. And uh, um, we had worked on one of Kenny's films as a director because he also directs um he i worked as an assistant editor and mike was a gaffer and that's where we met patrick he had a role in that and we just became friends and and kenny shared the script with pat didn't tell him it was a horror film he just told him hey this is an interesting script that i want you to read and he said that he his reaction to it was so visceral and he really thought it was so funny patrick is the most hilarious guy you'll ever meet Really? And so it was just such a, I feel you, it was the same kind of intimidation. I I was so nervous the first day. You know, I was like, okay, we have to be the most professional uh, first-time filmmakers there ever was. And then by the, t- by the time the first day ended, it was like we were old pals, and it was just so much fun. He was always joking on set, but at the same time had this very strict determination to the character. And it was just very, very lucky experience for me, I have to say. Yeah. 
I was just going to say the, a little last caveat there is that he seems to speak your guys's language or like, sorry, your, your language when you wrote the script, it just like, it, it really comes across. And uh, to quote my, like what, cause like I sat down and really thought about this movie for hours after I saw it. And the, one of the biggest things I took away from it is how, you know, everything happening with Patrick Fugit, you know, I, I might be a little biased because I clearly love the man, but it felt palpable. Like it felt real. It felt like he just understood what to do with your script. And I think it's like kind of a match made in heaven uh, to see him be on screen in, in this specific story. It's and he's always clearly chosen his parts very carefully. Yeah. Like you look at wrist cutters and uh, spun like there's he's oh, done yeah. so many great movies where he's done so many different things. And uh, it was really, really great to see him in this role. But yeah, so yeah. He's gotta... Mitch, to your point, also like speaking to like he's been in all these great movies, like for me as a as a cinematographer, it was intimidating as well. You know, he's worked oh. with like some of the greatest DPs and directors and but also adding to what you said about speaking our language, like it made it very easy for me and, and, and for my brother as well to kind of like, as far as the visual language goes, he has such a, a skill when it comes to knowing where he is in every composition. Like not only is he aware of where the act of where the character is at every point in the story, but he also has this sense, this strong sense of like composition and mise-en-scene and where, the characters are placed in the frame and what that does to like the emotional, I don't know. It's, it was so interesting to the point where he was like blocking things out with us in a way where he would think of what the coverage could be. And then we're also, yeah. And we're also interested in very little coverage, um, trying to play out scenes and as very, few shots as possible there's something about that that we're very drawn to and and he even had a joke about that at first like oh let me guess you guys don't want to add an extra shot but i think he respected that and he trusted us and and the fact that we showed confidence and and you know this is the way we want to tell this story i think he really hopped on board with that and he helped push that and make it better like he would give us ideas to make the way we had the story in our minds come to fruition. I don't know. It was very, very interesting and lucky, like Johnny said, too. Like, he really is. Uh, he's just a master of his craft, and he's been around it so long, and he's so talented that he would just flip on and off. Like, we would call action, he would just become Dwight. And there's a scene where it's very emotional, and he's about to cry, and he he was just focused on the minutia of a tear about to fall down his cheek and right when it was about to fall he stood up and cleared frame and then when we called cut he's like oh i bet you like that right johnny he's just so <laughs> accurate with it and you would That's never amazing. believe yeah but the the whole cast you know owen and ingrid everyone it's it was just an honor a, to have that i was about to get to that as well um but i think i might have cut you off scott i think you were going to say something Oh no, that's my actually no. What the one of the things Michael spoke to a lot of what I was actually going to ask about, um, which was specifically, I, well, I mean, the, the entire conversation about how how much help everybody was in terms of kind of creating the actual shot uh, composition and everything like that. 
there's such an expert level of kind of visual oppression going on throughout this movie, especially in the claustrophobia and everything like that. I guess I was just, I was a little curious. He answered some of this, but I was, I was curious in terms of how much of that was kind of on the page and intended in the first place. It sounds like you did work as a team to bring that to the screen, but is that, was that always the intention or was that something you were cognizant of bringing bringing to the proceedings or 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 maybe i'm maybe i'm even misreading it maybe it wasn't intended that way i just i found that the air is so often sucked out of the room on this on this picture yeah i mean that's a good i would say that's a good observation because it was intentional you know we're very intentional about every single shot you know and there's so many people on set that are helping us make that happen you know from production design because a lot of times we're the, the camera is very far from, from what's going on. Uh, it's it's kind of like observational almost. Mm-hmm. And that, that even has to do a lot with the production design because that's more that's in the frame when you're, when you're so removed with the camera from, from the action and from the subjects. But uh, like I said, also the actors, like the performance has to be that much stronger if you're not going to cut away from it. And Patrick in one of our Q and A's recently said something really interesting that I didn't think about maybe in that way, but to answer your question, Scott, I think what he said was there, there's something about the camera being um, far from the subject and kind of just rolling and hanging on there mm-hmm. that it makes him have to perform almost less sometimes. I, I don't know if you remember or Johnny, what his point was, but it was like, or or how he said it, but he was talking about how the camera being distant from the subject makes you kind of lean in and want some more out of the character. And that in a way changes the way he performs. He doesn't have to overact or, yeah, I, I don't know if that's well, yeah, there, I think I think there's a lot of context in, in being voyeuristic. You know, you're peeping into the lives of a very, a very private life. You know, they've created all these weird rituals just to, maintain equilibrium and happiness within them and i think that being as quiet as you can with the camera as far as camera movement limiting that shooting through doorways being economical with coverage so there's it seems like there's no fat in a way that there's no extra shot that was very important to the coverage and very important to the angles is being precise about where to put the camera and just staying there and letting the characters live within that because they're already stuck. They're stuck in the situation. They're stuck in the house. And then they're stuck in this frame inside a doorway, inside a, a square, like academy frame. So it's but everything that, is just. But wasn't uh, it in, interesting though, how he did mention something like, did he, he mentioned something about performing when the film is shot in that way, right? How the camera's just watching these things. Yeah, I mean, I think it brings it. it almost, it's almost the opposite, you know. You think you would have to overperform, but it's almost like you you're observing the subtleties of of an emotion. I think is what his point was. Well, and and a lot of the, I mean, the the emotional tone of it, what's going on, does almost feel a little bit like you've wandered into a hospital room you don't belong in, or something like that. And if you turn around too fast, you're going to hit a corner. Or you're you're going. You don't want them to notice you've even wandered in on them. But if you start moving around, there like it, there, there is a sense of closeness that you 
that that you guys were able to bring with such readiness and, and immediacy that's that's really impressive. And for the for this for what the story is, it's exactly what's called for. It's I, I, I mean that's this has just turned into another compliment. But I mean on, on <laughs> it's hard it's hard not to man. It really is on first feature. Yeah. Just it it is an expert handling of space. How yeah. you guys pulled that Thank off? Thank you. It, it, and yeah. it's so so clear that the focal point is the relationship between the, the, these two brothers and their sister. And right. uh, it, the way that it was filmed was just expertly crafted exactly what we should be focusing on. And that's what I'm, I'm saying. Like, obviously I've seen the film twice now. So I was able to like take a step back and be like, okay, let's calm down a little. Was it really <laughs> that good? Was it really that good? And um, in the theater, it just was even so much better and it's because, like, you really realize that it's just it's a very, very, very personal and close story. And you watch these characters crumble underneath it all and try their best to stay stay afloat. And like I loved uh, Ingrid's uh, Ingrid Sophie Scram. That's uh, am I saying her name correct? Yeah. Yeah. You know, who worked with Paul Thomas Anderson and then worked with you guys. I'm sure that was no pressure. I'm sure there's no pressure there. Yeah, but like it's funny. she she also has like a she did a commercial with Martin Scorsese too. So we were like, <laughs> no biggie, no biggie. Yeah. yeah, no, you guys and got this. Owen. Yeah, Owen. and Owen, Owen, who um, you know, like that he he's debatably like you, that character needed to work for the movie to work. There's no way that like if if it the the idea itself, you know, people think of vampires and they think of. You know, I, they could either think Christopher Lee vampires from back in the day, or you could think of 30 Days of Night and all the different iterations that there are of vampires. You took a very specific approach as to what I personally feel is the most realistic vampire depiction. And, you know, that's also coming from a guy who, like, I'm, who's to say what a realistic vampire depiction is? <laughs> but I loved, I loved the subverting of all of the, the expectations of a vampire. I, he didn't have his fucking, you know, huge fangs <laughs> sticking out. I love, I love that. And, um, I guess how, like, how did you go about crafting this specific vampire? And like, I'm sorry. I don't even know what I'm saying anymore. <laughs> I'm just like, I'm just kind of lost thinking about oh, the movie. No, no, no. It, it makes sense. I appreciate it. Um, I think for sure we wanted to ground a vampire. We still wanted a vampire, but we didn't feel the need that we needed fangs. You know, it's a sickness, and, and he's not going out there and doing his own bidding. He's not going out and feeding. So uh, I guess in an evolutionary sense, he doesn't need these fangs. Like, he's not a predator. He's yeah. weak, and his brother and sister are kind of like, uh, they're the ones who are going out and getting his food and so he just has to drink the blood and then the 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 son is a is a trope that we wanted to follow and adhere to because that obviously has to do with isolation he's not allowed to go out he's sick and so that's kind of a rule that's a boundary that makes him it forces him to be a recluse and it forces him to not have friends and then it's another source of the sadness so you're really stripping away this romantic Bram Stoker-ish Dracula view, and you're getting more of this sick vampire, which it's been done in movies before. You know, I'm not reinventing the wheel, but 
I wanted to keep it grounded in that way where you're focusing on the horror of the situation. But at the same time, there are revelations that I won't spoil that kind of yeah. give you these uh, quintessential vampire images. You know, I think it is important as much as you subvert, you have to respect these archetypes because they're classic for a reason, you know? Yeah. And one of, I think one of my favorite ones, I don't know if, if, if maybe you mentioned Scott, you, you caught onto it, but we didn't even, there's no mirrors anywhere in the house, but outside of the house, we, and, and it was kind of happenstance to an extent. There's, there's scenes in the motel where you see Jesse through a mirror, you see uh, Dwight through a mirror. And when, whenever we would see those things, we would, I remember there was one scene in the motel where it's uh, Pam and Dwight. And there's like this whole scene that happens like pointing into a mirror. And I think there's something about, um, those using those tropes, but in a way where it doesn't feel, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's kind of, it, it was cool to stumble upon some of these things as we were making a gra- more grounded vampire movie and using them in our visual language. I think the, the fact that the two older siblings are, are, they play in mirrors a lot says, says a lot in a way. Um, yeah, there's a lot of like, you know, self-reflecting even in in Dwight's character. I feel like he's in his head a lot. And Jesse, although she's, she's, you know, she wants to make sure that everything is, is in control and she's doing it out of love for her youngest sibling. And, and she wants to keep the family unit together. I do think that there is a lot going inside of her as well. So I feel like showing a lot of that through mirrors which is a vampire trope, but using it in a way where it can work on many levels is something interesting that you kind of pick up on as you're making a film. I, I thought it was, I thought that was one thing I wanted to point out that that was interesting that we noticed as as shooting went on. It's almost like these lucky things that just pre- present themselves to you. But in a more horror geek kind of way, because I did take a vampire fiction class in college. Um, in the whoa, dining- whoa, 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 what? <laughs> we can talk about that in a sec, but uh, okay. there's a scene where you see it's a quick shot, and you see the there's a big chess piece where the dining table is, and there's a mirror there that's covered with newspapers. And the reason they do that is because Thomas doesn't have a reflection, because vampires don't have reflections, they don't want him to feel bad, they don't want him to feel more different than he already is so it's again jesse and dwight trying to preserve this family unit by hiding his i guess you can call it monstrosity and they don't want him to know or or at least be reminded all the time that he has no reflection that's awesome (laughs) that's yeah like you obviously went so meticulous with how you were going to depict this specific vampire but then you also like, so speaking about Owen, who you have playing um, Thomas, like this is, like I said, the the movie could make or break underneath the pressure of his role. How did you find Owen? I found Owen because I was a huge fan after watching Super Dark Times. Yeah. Great movie. <laughs> yeah, great. Uh, that's, that's the only thing I've seen him in since. And I, uh, 
Yeah, he's in the Miseducation of Cameron Post. Yeah, he's we ran that at the theater. Actually. Great film. I, um, I haven't seen that one yet, but uh, so, I have heard about it. Yeah, he makes so great choices. He's so talented, and that's really that was my choice. Like this is he looks like Thomas in my head. He sounds like Thomas. I want him to play Thomas and I hope with all my heart that he does. And thankfully he loved the script and he's the nicest, sweetest guy. And he was, he looks like a Calkin brother. He kind of looks like a Calkin brother. We've gotten that a lot. And I completely agree. (laughs) Okay. It's, it's really interesting. The Mitch, Mitch brought up that, you know, the, the film could, you know, could crumble beneath the weight of that, had that performance not been spot on. And it's not a child performance, which is so often where these types of movies do fall apart, but it is a childlike performance. His performance is very interesting in terms of kind of positing him in a nowhere zone of age and time. Uh, I'm, I'm presuming that that was fully intentional or did he bring that out in the character when like, is that something he brought to it or was that mainly instruction? He, he brought so much like, the the fact that he has crickets that he takes care of like that was all him we were we were like workshopping his his gaunt little walk for for days on set trying to perfect it like he was so on top of the physicality beyond beyond what i knew because i the way i was blocking it in my head i'm like yeah you're gonna stand there and he's like okay where do i lean where do i sit you know, what blanket should I put over myself because I'm cold and I'm pale and I'm sick. So these are things that he brought to it. Yeah, the, 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 that sickness that he there he, he hits a very particular pitch with it that is neither uh, childlike nor ancient, but it's both at once and very it's it's outside of. <laughs> it's outside of normal sickness. It's one of the things that elevates the 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 role. I think it is. It it is something else entirely. Like it, it you know, because we've seen those types of roles in the past, and ha- he he commits in a really interesting way. Yeah, our 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 other executive producer Matt Wiggum, he was talking about how he didn't even want to include child or younger brother in the premise and the synopsis for the mm-hmm. press materials because he said. Maybe he's not younger. Maybe he's the same age or maybe he's older. And the reason he acts like a child is because he's stunted socially. He can't go out. Honestly, I I wasn't I hadn't had my mind made up one way or another. And it's in that. I mean, you kind of talked about it in terms of like not, you know, some of the rules being touched on for vampirism, but not being explicitly stated at any point a lot of where this film shines for me is in omission of information in a lot of cases like there's certain things that i think for a certain audience who needs their hand held on everything that uh they they might struggle with it a little bit because they're going to go well what about this i don't understand that so on and so forth um and this is one of those films that i felt the eeriness of it all took place in a in a space where you don't have those things explained to you uh was was that something in terms of the the well i mean surrounding lore and also certain character omissions were you aware of that as you were moving forward that you just you you know uh, is, is it was that intentional for me it was mm-hmm. one thing had to be clear mm-hmm. that there's well two things they're siblings and he needs blood to survive and that's it i didn't 
I wasn't personally interested in talking about where it came from or if Which he had gone. Yeah, if really he had gone to. Seriously. Thank you. Or if he had gone to the hospital to get a diagnosis or how long they've been doing it or where their parents are. I thought that throwing the audience into the situation right away, like the first minute of the film, I think, and then having the audience catch up, I think that's very fun for me as I've experienced in other movies. Mm-hmm. But Scott, I think, I think, sorry, I think that's interesting that you say that because we've get, we've been getting a lot of different reactions to it. Some people really want to know like, oh, where, how long has he been sick? Like, where, where did he get this from? And then other people are, you know, the omission is powerful. And I think that's very interesting to see that to someone that could be omission can be a strength and to someone else, it can be a weakness. But I, I think I'm, I agree that omission can sometimes make you wonder more or think more or, and, and there's a filmmaker that we really admire and that's uh, Yorgos Lantimos. And I think he's great at that. Like that's something that to me, it makes you almost fall into the world a little bit more. And that's something that I liked a lot about the script. Like I love the omission as long as, to me, as long as it is clear that he's sick, he needs blood, they're siblings, they care about each other, and they're, like, well-developed characters, and, and, and they, you know, emote, and they make you feel, I think that's the most important thing for me. Always trust your gut, you guys. Sorry, Scott. <laughs> I'm no. just saying, oh, oh, always trust your gut on that, because you guys were entirely right on that decision. Um, for for a plot device like it, it was a, as a viewer, I respected so much that I wasn't being talked down to, and like that I could figure this stuff out on myself on my own, and it works so well. It works. I I, I didn't think for a second. I want to know what kind of a, the, it was actually. What was fun about it is thinking about. I'm like, you know, this kid could have been a vampire from a, a very like they could have been like you said he could have been an older brother. Mm-hmm. I love the I love the idea of him being the oldest and that he stayed the same age as they've both grown older and they've been doing this that long. And it's up to us to actually figure out if we're going to. But you, you have such an enticing story around it. You're not thinking about those things. So, um, yeah, I think that was an expert decision. Sorry, Scott. No, that's fine. I was just going to say, inter- again, speaking to the emotional impact of it, I honestly didn't, I wasn't mulling it over until well after the fact when it was a couple of days later and I was still thinking about it. To a degree, again, feeling like you wandered into the room, I almost felt like it wasn't my business to ask. Um, <laughs> that's it, it interesting. Was, yeah. And, and, and that, was, that awesome. was the biggest thing. It, 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 they, these these characters are, I mean, I've wandered into their space, not the other way around. And so they don't really owe me that information. And that's what it felt like to me. Well, that, that's very interesting, Scott. And I think like hearing that makes makes me happy in a way, because I feel like that that then makes me feel like the cinematography serviced the, the film because that only adds to like what I was talking about being removed from the subject and and peeping through doorways and and just having that distance and observing. I mean, if, if you felt that way, then I feel like we accomplished something and I appreciate those words. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, just, I mean, just the fact that you were engrossed enough that you you feel like, I, I, I shouldn't ask that. That's disrespectful, <laughs> you know? You're no, putting not, your place in that world. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, and there was about 15 to 20 people 
who would probably agree with us because we've seen the scorecards. <laughs> it, it if, we, if we can at some point, it would be awesome. I would fly out there just to have some sort of homage screening whenever everything's better. That would be so fun. Absolutely. We will make that happen. Ain't that right, Scott? Absolutely. <laughs> That's in your ballpark. I've got the screen, so we can make it happen. Yeah. Okay, so Jonathan, you said you went to Vampire College. Let's hear about this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, Vampire Fiction. The This was a class that I was supposed to take when I was signing up for, not Vampire Fiction, but it was one of those literature from this date to this date. It was one of those classes. I just picked a random one. Um because it wasn't an elective. It was uh, something you had to take. I go to the class. Uh, it's like 11 people, 11 students and the teacher. And she says, hey, this semester only, this is the first time we re- we've ever done this. And the first time, the only time we're ever going to do this. This class is vampire fiction. And for me, I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. And some people actually dropped the class, which I was completely shocked by. But that's what it was. We read Dracula. We saw Interview with the Vampire, and it was amazing. That's unreal. So, like, what? What? So, you said you those are two things: Dracula and Interview with the Vampire. What other things did you study in the terms of like? How could you rope a whole course around vampire fiction? So, a lot of it was was learning what happened before it was. Uh, before the advent of Dracula, before the archetypal Bram Stoker vampire. Back, it actually started in the United States, and it was a story about uh, a heart being burnt, and it, it all originated somewhere else before it was attached to this robed, sexy being that had all this power and all this lust. And so we we studied the past before Bram Stoker, and then we read all of Bram Stoker, and then we went to more. We we saw um, Dark Shadows, we saw I Am Legend, we read a bunch of short stories, but it, it was very fun. Like, not the Johnny Depp or Will Smith ones, or are those the ones? Yes, you yes. guys studied those. So you know, I had I, I haven't seen like, Dark Shadows. This was before I was uh, more aware of interesting movies. I guess I was younger. This was like the beginning of college, and so I I feel like now I would have suggested some real cool movies that I did not know existed back then. So yeah, we saw some movies that are okay. You know, I Am Legend, and I wouldn't. Those wouldn't be on my top five, that's for sure. Well, speaking of which, or unless, Scott, you have a question here? Well, no, I, I, I do find that really interesting, though, because I have been thinking, for me, where your film exists kind of in the in the pantheon of vampire tales at this point. And actually, I Am Legend is one that I frequently, uh, literary-wise, like, I, I think about that. I never think about that. Like, I think that there's been a few really interesting adaptations of it. I, I really like Omega Man, and I like Last Man on Earth. Um, but the original story is is a very important story for me, the Richard Matheson uh, yeah. a, a novel, and and uh, so I don't think about that one. But is for, that for, the one with the Dodge Charger driving through empty New York? The movie, that, yeah. Oh, yeah. okay, that's yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, 
Definitely not. In, definitely not in the book. Um, <laughs> Uh, but it, 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 I was just thinking about it in those terms and like, I mean, your awareness of, uh, and I think this might've been where Mitch was getting ready to head. Maybe, um, your awareness, especially through having taken a course like that of where your film lands on the continuum, like, who do you think? Well, I think Mitch, were you going to ask him a top five vampire flicks? Is that where that was well, going? Well, yeah, I, 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 and it's funny, I didn't even tell Scott about that, but I do that <laughs> with every guest because it's fun. It's a nice way to get to know someone. Yeah. Uh, when uh, I love lists, and uh, it's my show, so I always yeah, try like to be lists. like, hey, tell, a, tell, tell me your top five of something. So we are going to talk about that okay. eventually. But put a pin in that, two seconds. Yeah, I agree. Curious where you guys think this film lands in terms of who your neighbors are. Someone in... In a, in a letterbox review, I think they said this falls between, or someone said this between, actually, this was from another podcast. The host said this. It's somewhere between um, Only Lovers Left Alive and Martin. Okay. That was one of the, because for me, Martin, also uh, Abel Ferrer's The Addiction as well, if you haven't seen that before, which, it, 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 which uh, less stylistically for those, like Martin, Martin, I, I get, I can see it's just, they are all, all three of those to me exist on their own and they, they don't yeah. really rely on anyone, any, they, they don't really feel like they are part of a subgenre. They're just, they are satellites out there on their own. And that's yeah. the only way in which I can make sense because your picture is so singular. And those, those do too. Like Martin is just its own movie. What else is like Martin in this? That, like, and that's something, uh, that's something I want to say and get across as well is that i'd like to think of myself as someone who's very well versed on vampires and the vampire subgenre and i personally do not think that there's any movie you can compare uh my heart can't be unless you tell it to in mm -hmm. terms of vampire movies the closest the closest i would come is my favorite vampire movie of all time which is that let the right one in and it's That's only because say. it's only because there's a there's like a human connection in that movie as well but I still think that your movie is so entire, so incredibly different from Let the Right One In. But I would say that in my mind, your neighbors with that with that film. But uh, sorry, yeah. I it, no, it's it, it's it's the gaggle of misfit vampire films, though. You you've entered that kind of like, it, it, I mean, they're kind of neighbors, I guess. But like, <laughs> they, it, it's only neighbors insofar as they don't fit neatly into the rest of that. Pandy. Agreed, and I, I think that that's brilliant that you're able to, you know, live next to these other films that you uh, there there might be some kind of comparisons to, but it uh, I think what you're trying to say, Scott, too, is that like it's it's pretty tough to nail down exactly which movies the filmmakers of My Heart Can't Beat unless you tell it to what what were their inspirations, and I guess now we can ask you that. <laughs> so to be honest, I haven't seen Martin. I haven't seen Only Lovers Left Alive. I haven't seen The Addiction. I haven't seen The Hunger. I haven't seen Wow. <laughs> um, I, can I love you that. My, I can give you my list. Let's fucking hear it, man. Let's my hear top, it. My top vampire. Well, I'll start at the bottom. I'll start at number five. Okay. With, uh, and Michael, Michael, we're coming to you afterwards. So hopefully you have a list. <laughs> uh, my number five is Vampire. The one from the 30s, yes. The silent film. Love that movie. It's creepy. Super, super creepy, even today. Uh, then Near Dark. 
so fun. Man, I got to quickly stop this for a second. So we, um, the very, the second episode of the terror table was on near dark because it was, it was one of, uh, that was one of my picks where I was just like, we refound, like I'm, I'm doing the podcast with different people now, um, from when we started it four years ago, but we decided that we wanted to just talk about movies that we love that a lot of other people, we don't, we don't hear them talk about and near dark was my pick. And I'm so happy to hear that because <laughs> my co-host disagreed. Talk oh, about a, a gaggle of misfit vampires, right? Oh um, man, Lance Hendrickson and uh, Bill Paxton are yeah. so good in that role. Shout out to my friend Brad, who made a, a vampire film last year called Bit. It's an indie vampire. It's a very, very fun movie. And Bill Paxton's son is in it. And there's oh, wow. an homage to Near Dark with the sunglasses. You should check that movie That's out. That's awesome. It's called um, Bit? Bit, B-I-T. Perfect. I'm going to add that to my list here. Uh, number So number three is A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. So Love good. It. Love it. So good. And then number two is Thirst, the Chanwook Park. Oh, that, Amazing. I, Amazing. that that would be another one for, for yeah, but yeah, yeah, good call. And then number one, of course, it's the same as you, Mitchell. Let the right one in. Yeah, that's just such a powerful movie. Um, very good. Oh, that's awesome. That's great to hear. It's what about best. you, Michael? Have you have you been a fan of vampire movies in the past? Uh, to be honest, I can't really remember watching too many of them. So that's a hard one for me. I think top lists are also very hard for me. They're extremely hard. So what I'm going to do is choose your top five cinematography <laughs> roles. <laughs> You're just going to have to choose your top five. Top five what? In uh, cinematography. Oh, films? Like, who's... Yep. Wait. Best that would be extremely difficult. That would be extremely difficult. I was, I, was partial, I was partially yeah. joking. Yeah, I think... That well, is I, tough. I, I can talk about some... There will be blood. Some influences. Oh. Yeah, let's do it. And I just heard There Will Be Blood, and that's one of my favorite movies of all time. So Yeah, that's a great movie. But I think... Um, in relation to this film, I think it was interesting for me because although we are lovers of genre, I think there are other films and, and mediums that really inspire me. And like, I watched this doc documentary on Ozu and the way that he captures family life or he would capture family life. And um, that, that was something I found interesting. There's this Icelandic movie called Rams that's about two brothers that was really powerful and yeah we ran that at the broadway that's uh, yeah that's such yeah. a great such a great film and and i think uh, i mentioned foxcatcher there's something about the the atmosphere in that that's so thick and so heavy and 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 it's interesting because a lot of the times i realize i'm i'm drawn to like films that have siblings in them or familial bonds and uh gregory crudson is a photographer who photographs he i think he even like sets sets all of these scenes up and he photographs people um it's just like mundane suburban life and it's like like you were saying scott like peeping into or like watching things that you're not supposed to be watching and, and there's something about his photographs that are so you know you you feel like you're observing something that you don't know if you should be watching but there's right something dark to it but it's also beautiful and yeah i don't know i think 
filmmakers as of late that that I think have a strong voice, like Robert Eggers. When I saw The Witch, that was just uh, there was something about that film that felt so, you know. And again, it's about family and coming of age. And there there was something about the way he treated witches that I thought was interesting. And I guess I'm into a whole bunch of different things, but somehow they've made their way into this movie. And yeah, I, I, I like to stay open when it comes to what I watch, even if I'm making a horror movie. And that's not to say that I don't, that I don't appreciate horror because I do and I love it, but yeah. No, I love that. And that's something that, you know, you said early on in this interview is like, once again, the connection with Foxcatcher and understanding that that's also horrifying to a lot of people. And uh, just the way that you can treat the genre, that's it's people like you guys who are going to be the ones who are going to truly change what, what, what I love so much, which is horror movies and, um, I think you guys are off to an incredible start. So thank you so much, you so much. for thank for talking you. with us. Uh, you guys are definitely, we can't wait to see what you have in store next. And we can't wait to hopefully have you out in Saskatoon so you can see our little theater. We had Joe Dante last year. So um, wow. hopefully you guys can make it out as well and yeah. get a taste of our city and what we're all about. Yeah, I mean, I, I hope to be there next year, even just to visit. We're working on a fun little stop motion short right now as we speak and we'll submit that and see if that gets us in because we would love to be visiting and watching a, in your theater because it's been just, just the reception on this podcast and just the things we've heard and the audience award. It's been very, very good to us. So thank you. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Scott, and thanks, Mitch, for this conversation. It's fun to be able to talk talk about our film because, um, like like John said, we haven't even watched it on the big screen yet, which is kind of sad for me. But uh, I appreciate the words, and I appreciate you sharing the audience's response because when you were telling me, uh, telling us, Scott, about how they reacted and how how it was palpable, like it, it almost my eyes widened up because I'm like, wait, what? Or, or like, you know, when dogs, like their ears go up, it's like, I haven't, I haven't heard or seen any of this besides reading, you know, things on Letterboxd, which, which I also appreciate, but it's just, it's nice to hear you guys say these things. And, and uh, even if you didn't like the movie, it's just nice to hear what people think or, or, or how they feel about it because we haven't gotten to experience that in person. So I appreciate being on this podcast and, and having a chat with you guys. Absolutely. Well, you guys, you guys absolutely killed it. It's it's an incredible film. And uh, do you have any updates on when people are going to be able to see it? Or is that something that we're not able to do right now? I think that it'll be released in the U.S. next year, maybe in the summer. I'm not sure. Um, okay. So it's going to be a little while. So yeah. yeah. But as far as Canada, we don't have... Uh, any planned distribution there yet, although fingers crossed. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll keep our eyes on it because, I mean, even if it, if we, obviously nobody has any idea what theater distribution is looking like right now, but with 
I mean, the, the, the type of film it is like, I mean, obviously with context being taken into account on, on a horror podcast, we're t- discussing it in those terms, but in terms of the type the stuff that I'm usually running at the Broadway, which is, has a tendency to be art house, uh, foreign film and just kind of like that, that stuff, it fits right in next to all the stuff I'm running. And if it, uh, if the possibility arises, we'll see it in Saskatoon again, for sure. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. I will gladly go out and see it again, right next to my buddy Scott. <laughs> so, yeah. Legally to sit next to each other by that point. Yeah, that's true. Well, we can sit like, I don't know, you were sitting like three rows behind me. We got to yeah. just point that out, like how like spread out we all were in the theater. Yeah. And like it's actually still amazing how we still got that communal experience. But uh, yeah, it was, it was very, uh, it was gratifying for Scott and I. I can only speak for you here in knowing that we we did that episode where we talked about our favorite movies that were played and your film was one of them. And uh, it's nice to know that the city agreed. And it was very, very uh, obvious when we saw the film. And like, yeah, like even I, when we finished, I was going to say this after the Patrick Fiji thing, but when the screening ended, I looked at like our festival directors. I was like, why isn't Patrick Fugit the biggest actor in the world? <laughs> that was the first actor, the first thing I said. So, yeah, no, I absolutely agree. love your guys' film. And thank you so much for being here. Do you guys have any social medias that uh, our listeners can keep up with you on? Yeah, you can go Instagram. We're at Heart Can't Beat. And the same for Twitter. You can also find us on heartcanbeat.com, facebook.com slash heartcanbeat. And yeah, uh, we usually post all our updates there. Perfect, Michael. Are you? Want- oh, sorry. Also, yeah, don't 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 forget that the, also that the short films that we referenced earlier are available as well because uh, I I was able to take those in and they're great. Oh, thank yeah. you. Yeah, this, that's that's uh, that's I think just you guys have a one one of the two of you has a Vimeo uh, yeah. account that has those available. Or you can or- just go on my website. It's my name with a dash between the first and last name and i have my shorts there oh okay there you go even easier even the crime thriller no that one i don't, <laughs> you don't <want> that one. <laughs> i'll send it to you i mean it, yeah. it was fun it was fun and and it's a uh, it's actually it got distribution with shorts tv so it's somewhere oh, in wow. the ether right now awesome all right cool thank you guys so much for joining us and uh We'll hear you guys. Well, we would love to have you back on your next feature or your next short, anything that happens. We'll we'll keep in touch. But thanks again for being here. And thank you all for listening to this episode of The Terror Table.